Well, take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We are nearing the end of this book that has, uh, with some interruptions for holidays and whatnot, has been about a year and a half now as we have been working through the book of Romans. I trust that it has been a good study. It is one that you cannot really miss, unfortunately, because there are so many pieces and parts. And in light of that, I want to send you to a place. Uh, if you did miss some of the sermons, you missed parts of that, they are available online or on iTunes. Type in Goodland Bible Church, and you can go there on iTunes. Uh, Jeremy informed me that as you look around here, I don't know the number this morning, but as you look around here this morning, there are more people listening online than here in the service. We don't know who they are. (laughs) No one's like, that's me. No, (laughs) Uh, I can tell you this, it's not my parents, so that's, (laughs) uh, I don't know who it is. I I know several individuals who said, hey, we've listened to it, we've heard it, and so I praise the Lord for that. However, we are seeing uh, 20 to 40 people every week get in online and listen to these sermons, and so Uh, I want to encourage you to join them if you have missed any of them, because we have dealt with some issues that have been pretty weighty, pretty heavy, and then we come on the back side of that, and we're able to fill in some of the pieces. And so you you come for the weighty stuff, and you don't come for the the application parts of that. It makes it difficult, or vice versa. And so uh, make sure you go back through, uh, and it looks like uh, it's been requested that I do a summary of the book of Romans. Uh, I don't know how you do a summary in a couple weeks, but I'm going to attempt it here in a couple of weeks as we summarize the book of Romans and just hit some of the highlights. What is Paul saying? What is he doing? And, and re- reviewing some of those things for us so that we get a good idea. Romans is the foundational book of theology. It is the foundational book of what the church must believe. And so as individuals, it is vitally important to one another. And part of that is where we're going to see today. I have entitled the sermon, Accept One Another, There are many things that separate the church from society, things that make us different. But all too often and increasingly, we are seeing this push to cause uh, the culture, the society, to change the church. Now, some of that is good. Some of that is desperately bad. All too often, these things uh, are covered over. These differences are covered over in order to make the church seem more like the world. My question is, is that model working? Is that model working? Yes, you have great numbers. But we're seeing young people leaving the church at an astounding rate. Is that model working? It appears to me that we live in a society that is divided by more obstacles than at any point in our history. It is possible that some of these issues of division were stronger in the past. And I'm not speaking about their strength. I'm speaking about their number. The number of reasons to be divided is greater now than ever before. We are divided by race. We are divided by sex. We are divided by marriage. We are divided by religion. We are divided by politics. We are divided by moral issues and amoral issues. Those which are too numerous to count. We are divided by taxes. We are divided by rights. We are divided by life, death, and on and on and on and on. Many of these, many of these issues are vitally important. Yet... As Christians, we are called to a unity that is completely different than the world. And that unity is based upon the theology. So what is it that unites us? Well, Paul is going to get 
to that as we get into this morning. The idea that I want us to understand is this. Believers strive to live together in unity because of the work of the Godhead in providing for our great hope. Do you know what makes us different? Do you know what makes us distinct from the divisive world around? You see, we can, we can have divisions among us and still unite as a body. And that's what Paul is getting. He's moved us through Christian liberty. What is Christian liberty? We have dealt with that now for a month, and this is the capstone to that argument. But this is also the capstone to the book. The body of the book of Romans is completing as we move through this passage. We've got more. We've got a whole other chapter to deal with and part of another. But we are ending the main thrust of the body, the main argument of Romans today. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for the privilege that it is to have been students of your word. Lord, I know sometimes there have been some very weighty issues, issues that have been uh, very deep, very intense. But I also understand that there has been some tremendous application that needed that. And Paul even agrees. He says, I've been bold uh, at some point so that you would understand. I praise you for Paul's boldness. I praise you for his willingness to deal with these issues because we still face them today. Lord, I pray that we would understand your word. I have a fear that we uh, misapplied, misunderstood some of last week. And so as we go back and address some of those things, I pray that you would guide and direct our hearts and our lives, that your name would be glorified in us. Help us to be faithful and obedient in practicing your word, uh, that the application of the theology would flow out of us in such a way that we would have a passion for prayer, a compassion for people, that we'd be rooted in your word, but that we'd be changed as individuals that your name would be glorified in us as we seek to live out um, the results of what it was that you did for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We have, as I've already said, we've spent a month considering the issues of Christian liberty. And Paul has brought us through somewhat of a roller coaster, somewhat stepping on our toes at times, helping us understand the difference between conviction and Uh, liberty, helping us understand the difference between conviction and theology, helping us work all of these things out. So often we hold our conviction as theology, and that is dangerous. And Paul points that out. He reveals that to us. But at the same time, we also use our convictions to stamp out the liberty of another believer. And that's not right either. And so Paul has helped us move through that, and now he gets to this point. The emphasis of this passage is that as Christians, we should accept one another. So what does that mean? What does that look like? I guarantee we have uh, misapplied this passage as a culture in this age. We've been told not to judge one another, right? Is that what Paul has said through this? He said directly, do not judge one another. But is he referring to convictions? Is he referring to liberty? Absolutely not. Or rather, that's what he is referring to, not sin. He doesn't want us to continue to sin. We should... Uh, challenge one another on sin. We should challenge one another on our, our godliness. But when it comes to an issue of liberty, should we judge one another? We shouldn't judge each other for that. If someone is practicing their liberty, praise God, let them practice their liberty. If someone is practicing their convictions, Paul says, praise God, let them practice their convictions. As we get into this morning, we put the capstone on all of that. And he brings this discussion and the entirety of the main body of Romans to a conclusion by answering one final question. The question is, how is it possible that we accept one another? How is it possible? With Christ as our example, we're going to see the distinctions of backgrounds melded together in one body, united in diversity, And that is going to shine through for us. And so we're going to look at these three areas. 
first Christ's acceptance of the Jew because Christ becomes our example. We are to be like Christ and Christ accepts the Jews and he does so in a marvelous way. Without the theology of the book, we don't understand the full weight of this. But then we recognize that Christ also has the acceptance of the Gentiles. He is, he is accepting of the Gentiles. And again, without the theology of the first eight chapters, we wouldn't understand this. And then Paul says, live life in abundance. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. And we're going to understand that as we close out this morning. But let's begin here by looking first at 7 and 8 of Romans chapter 15. And the scripture there says in, in verses 7 and 8, Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us, to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Now as we begin to understand this, we must first understand the example of Christ. What was it that Christ did? What establishes Christ's acceptance as different from our own? Because in our own acceptance, we want to surround ourselves with people that we like, right? We, we want to surround ourselves with people who are like-minded, who live in the same culture, practice the same things, believe the same things. It is, it is, not, it is not unique that we find a, a group of people who are all Republicans, or a group of people who are all Democrat, or a group of people who are all black, or a group of people who are all Hispanic, or a group of people who are all white. Why? Because we like to surround ourselves in the, in the unity and similarities. But that's not the church. Church is unity and diversity. And Paul is going to build upon this as we first see Christ's acceptance of the Jews. And in order to understand that, we have to understand the example of Christ. Now, we closed last week by considering this important verse. And so uh, the full uh, breakdown of this verse is in last week's sermon. I'm not going to do that again. But I want to go back and correct some of what I think we misapplied. You see, this verse in many ways serves as the reason that we practice our liberty in unity. This verse serves as the reason as to why in certain situations I'm going to behave differently than I'm going to behave in others. Remember the illustration of uh, the wine rack. It's not against the Word of God to drink. It is against the Word of God to be drunk. And yet we must understand that there are some who are weaker believers, who are struggling with that issue, who may have come from alcoholic homes or may be an alcoholic themselves. And so for the sake of them, we pull back our liberty. And Christ is our example in this. It is easy for those weak in faith to demand the surrender of Christian liberty. In fact, how often have we seen it in legalism where they say, you must dress this way. You must wear your hair this way. You must read this Bible. Right? It's easy for the weaker in faith to demand your surrendering of Christian liberty. Is that correct? Absolutely not. It is also not correct for the strong in faith to lord their liberty over the weak in faith. It is not correct for you to go drink that alcohol in front of one who is struggling with the issue of alcohol. That is lording your faith over them. Yes, it is within your Christian liberty. But for pity's sake, is that what it means to be a Christian? Absolutely not. Human nature, tainted as it is by sin, wants vindication. We want assurance that we are right. It concerns me to think that we missed an important part of this last week. You and I have no right to demand the surrender of another's liberty. Nor do we have the right to lord over another in our liberty. 
The concern throughout these last two chapters is that you and I are to be concentrated, to be focused on our own practice. Paul is looking at the individual heart. He is concerned about what you are doing. He's asking if your convictions are established in the Lord. He's asking, is your practice of liberty in accordance with the Word of God? And in doing so, only then, when we answer those questions faithfully and honestly and biblically, only then do we evaluate the needs of the others. And we meet those needs in order to demonstrate grace and unity by the use and the non-use of our liberty, not confrontation. So we evaluate our own lives and we say, you know what? I have this strong conviction. Yes, I understand we have this liberty in Christ, but this is a strong conviction. The Lord has laid it on my heart. Paul says if you violate that conviction, you sinned, even though it's a Christian liberty. You may have that conviction. Praise God you do. No one has the right to remove that from you because it's a Christian liberty. You may have the other way where you're practicing the liberty and you know very good and well it's within Christian liberty. may not agree with culture may not agree with the society in which you live, but you are practicing this Christian liberty. It is within your right to do so. However, are you using it in abusive ways? You've got to deal with those issues first in your own heart and your life. And when you have dealt with those issues, then all of a sudden you begin to realize, wait a minute, I've got a brother over here who's really struggling. I didn't know this, but, but he's struggling with Internet use. And he's looking at things he should not be looking. He's looking up pornography and these things on the Internet. You know what, maybe I shouldn't. Uh, flash those those ads or whatever it happens to be. You see, we surrender some of our Christian liberty for the sake of a, a fellow believer. We don't demand they surrender for us. That's the, that's the struggle. And I fear that we missed that last week. I want to highlight, you cannot ask someone to surrender their liberties. That is not your right. It is not your privilege. In fact, it is sin to do so. So we must understand this carefully. But as we move on, we now see that our example is Christ. And Paul sets the stage to challenge the way we practice liberty. We are not to conform another to our way of thinking. We accept them as Christ has accepted them. You and I have no right to demand anything less. And so the joy of the next few verses is that we do not have to assume how Christ demonstrated this. We do not have to say, well, I think Christ did this and I think he did that. I think he worked this out. No, Paul gives us the exact example of Christ over the next few verses. And he begins to do so in verse 8. Notice verse 8. It says this, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God and confirm the promises given to the fathers. So we recognize the example of Christ, but we also recognize that he is a servant to the Jews. Consider this amazing statement. The Jews who immediately hung him on the cross. We were involved. We participated because of our sin. But Christ came to be a servant to the Jews, to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. Now, this would make absolutely no sense if you did not have chapters 9 through 11 of this book. Because chapters 9 and 11 reveal how this was, reveal how this was laid out. And it is, it is a challenge to the Jewish mind today. Have you ever run into a Jewish person today and you started to share the gospel with them? You know what their challenge is? Fine, share the gospel, but leave Jesus out of it. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. Because Jesus is, is a false prophet, or if anything, he's just a prophet. But I don't follow him. The Jewish mind has a difficult understanding that, difficulty understanding that Jesus came to minister to them. And he, he not only came to minister to them, but he accepted them. He accepted their conditions and their position. Not in sin, 
recognize he dealt with their sin, but in their Christian liberty. His ministry was not what the Jewish person expected. They expected a king to come and sit on the throne of David. Are they going to get that? Yeah, but they got to get the first coming first. They missed it. The second coming, they got to get the first coming before they get the second coming. The second coming is coming. It's going to be here. It's about here. But as we recognize that, they expected the second coming to be where Christ uh, would be in His position when He first came. But the fact that they deny that Christ's ministry was different, the fact that they deny who the Messiah is, does not change its actuality. And so you and I must share the gospel with them. But we also must understand Christ's heart. Christ came to fulfill the words spoken by God to the fathers of Israel. And this is the promises revealed in Romans 9-11. through When you go through all of the Old Testament and you see the promises made to Abraham, you see the promise made to David, you see the promise made to Moses about the land portion of the covenant, when you see the promise made to Jeremiah in the New Covenant, you realize God has a whole host of promises that have yet been fulfilled for Israel. And yet as believers, our faith is based upon God fulfilling them. If God doesn't fulfill those promises, we have no faith. But is God going to do it? Absolutely He's going to do it. And Paul reminds us that Jesus came to show the Jewish person that God is not done with them yet. In fact, that is the next aspect of this, the confirmation of the promises. Christ came to be a servant. The word is dekanos. The word is deacon to the Jew. He came to serve them with what they needed. And then we have this confirmation of the promises. The ministry of Christ to the Jews confirmed that God is faithful. This verse offers incredible hope to the Jew, but it also offers incredible hope to us because Romans chapter 8, verse 28 reminds us that our faith is built on the promises made to Israel. God doesn't keep those promises, then you and I have no faith. We may as well leave right now. But God will keep those promises. Our faith is built on those promises. So it gives Jew incredible hope, but it gives the Gentile incredible hope. They, the Jew practiced the law in an attempt to draw near to God. But by the law, that was impossible. That wasn't the purpose of the law. That wasn't what the law was supposed to do. Their failure to faithfully keep it did not negate the promises that God had made. What it did do was open the door for Christ to fulfill one of the promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Keep your finger here. Go back to Genesis 12, 3. Say, what, is this, what does this mean to me? I mean, come on. We're talking about Israel. What does this mean to me? 12, 2. Genesis 12, or 12, 3, rather. It says, and I will bless those. God is speaking His covenant to Abraham. And He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. If it were not for the Jewish heritage of our faith, we would not have faith. We would not have salvation. God promised to Abraham that he was going to make all nations of the earth experience the blessings of his great love. And he did so through Jesus Christ. The Jewish believer is now able to fellowship hand-in-hand with the Gentile believer as both are examples of God's application of His perfect plan of redemption. Both diversity brought together in unity. 
Yeah, they came through it different ways. They came through salvation the same way, but they came when their backgrounds and everything else was different. The Jew practiced the law, and in the law they recognized they were not good enough to ever satisfy the law, and so Christ came to pay that, and so they, they came to know Christ as Savior. The Gentiles said, I don't know anything about the law. I didn't practice the law. I don't keep those special days. I came to know Christ because Christ died for me, and by faith, uh, by grace through faith have I received Him. And hand in hand, as, as united believers, they, they're able to walk through the door. The Jew-Gentile relationship is still very difficult in our culture. However, I asked a question a little bit ago and I got no response. How many of you have ever had a conversation with a Jewish person about the gospel? You know why? Because there are not very many, if any, in Goodland, Kansas. So what does this look like? You see, we don't experience that exact strain. But do we know the difference in cultures? Yeah. Do we know the difference uh, between the sexes? <laughs> All the married guys are like, yeah. <laughs> we understand. No, see, the, and the women are like, yes, I understand. Right there. <laughs> we, have this, we have these distinctions. We have these uh, things that make us diverse. And in a society that has, has uh, caused those to separate, has caused those to become greater, do we understand the strain? of the weaker believer and the stronger believer. Absolutely we do. And Paul is is giving to us some guidelines that we understand these various backgrounds and cultures, all squeezed together. And so we begin to establish some basic principles. Our Savior is what provides the acceptance. Not nationality, not practice, not sex, not whatever it happens to be. You see, it is our Savior that provides the unity. And that is only because of the doctrine that is found in this book. Paul is basing everything on this. He's saying it all goes back to the foundation that was established in Romans 1 through 11. Your faith cannot be faithfully lived out without that. You say, I want to apply this. Great, apply it. But you have to have the theology. Or you're going to misapply it. And that's what's happened to the modern church. That's why we're going through this book. That's what Paul is trying to demonstrate for us. So, we recognize that Christ's acceptance of the Jews is vital. He didn't uh, leave them where they were at, but He accepted their weaknesses, He accepted their faith, and He gave them what they needed. That's how you are to use your Christian liberty. You recognize someone else's issues, and through the acceptance of them, you give them what they need to grow in godliness and grace. And then we have the Gentiles. Now we're getting to us. Now we're getting to the heart of the issue with us. Notice what he says there, starting in verse 9. He says, And for the Gentiles, to glorify God for His mercy. He says, As it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And Paul starts a series of, of quotes that we're going to get to in just a little bit. But first, we must understand that Christ's acceptance of the Gentiles was to demonstrate God's mercy. Christ's ministry to the Gentiles was in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. That all nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise that through Abraham, all nations would understand who God is. 
Christ's work and ministry because of this promise given to Israel way back then are, is now also given to the Gentiles. Now remember, we have to keep this balanced. The, the believer is given, is given tremendous promise. But the Jewish person is given promises. When you see promises in the Word of God, those belong to Israel. Promise belongs to the church. The promise is that all nations of the earth will be blessed. Our hope is eternal. Our hope is heavenly. And so that is the direction we want to go. Christ's work and ministry, because of the promises given to Israel, have given the promise to the Gentiles. The gospel has been made available to us who are Gentiles. And so uh, this was done to demonstrate the mercy of God. What an incredible mercy it is when you consider the full ramifications of that. Did you deserve it? Absolutely not. You did not deserve it. Did Abraham deserve it? No. Abraham did not deserve it. Obviously, look at his life. And yet God moved through him, promising to him to reach to the pagan peoples of the world. You and I, who were formerly pagan and now believers. So what does this ministry look like then? Christ's ministry to the Gentiles, what does it look like? Paul adds four Old Testament passages, and we'll read the rest of them. I read one of them in verse 9. Verse 10 says, again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come to the root of Jesse, or come, there shall come, rather, the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. That word hope is going to become vitally important in just a moment. But before we get there, as we move through this understanding, we recognize that Paul is adding four Old Testament passages to reveal to the Jewish mind that the ministry of Christ to the Gentiles has been the plan all along. There's a plan for them and there's a plan for the Gentiles. In fact, the first passage quoted, the first of these four, is actually found in two places. First is it found in 2 Samuel 22, as well as in Psalm 18, verse 49. And in that passage, David vows to praise God among the Gentiles. David, king of Israel, vows to praise God among the Gentiles. Israel was to be the instrument through whom, through whom God's redemptive work would extend to all of the Gentiles. And guess what? David knew that. And he praised God. He vows to praise God among the Gentiles. What an amazing statement. Verse 12 we have this quote from Isaiah 11.10. And this passage refers, uh, the passage in Isaiah 11 refers to the king who would come from the line of Jesse, who would rule. And in fact, Israel is going back, this is why Paul uses this, by the way. Uh, Israel is going back to this and saying, see, we have a king who's going to rule. And Paul says, you're right, you do. But you missed a part of it. And he goes back and he picks up verse 10 and he reveals that the root of Jesse is Christ, and that root was going to rule over the Gentiles as well as the Jew. In fact, Revelation 22, verse 16, one of the uh, last times, it is the second to the last time in all of Scripture that Christ speaks. And guess what He says? I am the root of Jesse. Christ is going to fulfill all that the root of Jesse was going to fulfill. And Paul reminds Israel of this. And he reminds the Gentile of this. As 
As it is with the Jew, it is in Christ that the Gentiles have hope. You see, the Jew has hope in Christ, right? They did. They do. They continue. Christ came to fulfill the law. And in fulfillment of the law, they must accept Him by grace through faith. Not their grace. Whose grace was it? God's grace. God's grace. It's because of God's grace that they can respond in faith. And that's what Paul is about to ask us to do. And they have hope. What about the Gentiles? By grace, through faith. God's grace, their response. And we have hope. But the Gentiles do not live under the law. But the Jews lived under the law. Even at this time. Remember the the problem that's going on in Rome. And Paul isn't writing to necessarily address this problem, but he's writing because he's seeing it as an issue. You have the Judaizer Jews who have come to know Christ as Savior, but they're still practicing the things of the law. And Paul is saying, except the the Gentile believer. They're actually the stronger one in faith. They're not, uh, they don't need these crutches anymore. And so accept them. And Paul is, is building a case as to why the Jews should accept them. He's saying, look, Christ, who is your Messiah, the one who came for the sake of Israel, also came for the sake of the Jews. So Jew, accept the Gentile. And Gentile, accept the Jew. Diversity and unity. And unity and diversity. The Gentile has much to be thankful for. As we are the witnesses of the incredible mercy of God put on display by the Lord Jesus Christ in the redemption of the Gentiles. For the Jew, this serves as a testimony that God is faithful to His word in every way, and will keep all of the promises that have been made to them, many of which are yet unfulfilled. And this draws the Jew and the Gentile in unity to Christ. Perhaps it would be helpful to summarize what Paul is saying. Get us back to this application understanding here. And it's especially true given that we are not experiencing this Jew-Gentile relationship. So, So let's get some application going again. Paul is revealing that when a believer considers another believer, we praise the Lord for the work done for their salvation as well as for our own. When you look at another believer, do you praise God for the work that it took for them to come to know Him as Savior? Kind of changes your perspective, doesn't it? Like, you know what? That person is driving me bonkers today. You look across, you go, you know what? I praise the Lord for the work that it took for their salvation. It took a lot, I understand. <laughs> but it did for me as well. It did for me as well. You see, I have challenged you over and over and over to have compassion for people. Part of compassion for people is not just unbelievers, but believers. Do you have compassion for your fellow believer? If you hold your Christian liberty in such a way that you care more about them than your own use of that liberty you have compassion for your fellow believer. And you know where that starts? By looking at them and saying, you know what, I praise God that that dirty, rotten sinner was saved by grace through faith. I praise God that when that person was yet a sinner, Christ died for them. I praise God that while all have sinned, the gift of God is eternal life. And that they can be in heaven and God is one day going to restore our relationship. I may not like them now, but God is one day going to restore my relationship with them. 
know, what an amazing statement. What an amazing truth. And Paul is pointing to the Jew and he's saying, listen, listen, the same work for your salvation was done for the Gentiles. And Paul's looking at the Gentiles and saying, look, yes, they practice funky things. I understand that. But the same work for their salvation was done for you. You're united in faith. And if you want proof of that, look at Romans chapters 1 through chapter 8. And then if you don't have enough proof yet, look at 9 through 11. Because we begin to understand, we begin to put the pieces together that salvation is given to the sinner who believes, responds in faith to the grace that is being offered to them. You see, we value each other first of all because of Christ's acceptance. I can value you and you can value me because Christ accepted me. Dirty, rotten, filthy, dirty sinner that I was. And He accepted you, dirty, rotten, filthy sinner that you were. And offered salvation. And by faith you responded. Therefore, the process of bringing you to salvation and fulfilling all that God has given gives me reason to praise Him and to practice unity with you. And the very same works the other way. You see, As Christians, we have unity and diversity because it was Christ who paid for it. And Paul goes on and he adds one other aspect to this. Let's live life in abundance. Notice what he says. This is building off the word hope in verse 12. He says, verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what God provides, does He not? Yes, He does. God provides. But while we our minds go to all kinds of different things, notice what God provides in verse 13. The one thing the world desperately desires and the believer has, hope. Hope. God provides. And Paul draws the instruction to a close. He builds off the word hope in verse 12. Paul's prayer, his intense desire, is that the God who provides hope will fill the believers in Rome with joy and peace because of the hope. That's his prayer. He's praying this for the believers in Rome. He says, okay, we've worked all the way through this. Jew and Gentile, praise God, because Christ has accepted you both. You both have the same salvation. And he says, and in light of that, because you both have this hope provided by God, I'm praying that God will give you joy and peace. For the believer, great peace is ours when we understand the foundation of our hope. It is established in the power of our great God. Notice he didn't say this, and I I hope that you will be filled with all joy and peace. What's the foundation to hope? Well, he says this, he says, now may the God of hope, the foundation of the hope that you have in Christ Jesus, the hope that is lasting, that will come to fruition. I'm just not hope upon hope, man, I hope it rains today. I hope it does rain today, but the reality is, unless the weather guy is totally wrong, it's not going to rain today. You see, as we move through this process, we begin to recognize that there's a difference in hope. As a Christian, your hope is not based upon, I hope my truck starts, I hope it rains, I hope whatever. Your truck, is, or, your truck, your hope is found in the power of our great God. You know what? That's where I want my hope to be. 
And Paul says, in light of our great God, I hope that you have joy and peace. Because he is the one who gives it to you. He is the one who supplies the hope. He is the one who supplies the joy and peace. So what is our role? Because Paul adds to it. He says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Those are key words. Because I've run into a lot of Christians who are Christians who have come to know Christ as Savior who are hopeless. They, they, they have hope, but they don't know they have hope. They have hope, but they don't practice it. So what is our role? Our role in this matter is not the pursuit of joy or peace. That's not your job. Your job is continued faith. You see, joy and peace are the results of you practicing your continued joy and faith. You say, well, I've lost faith today. Well, that I'm sorry. You just lost joy and hope as well. So who lost it? You or God? You did. Go find it. In other words, go practice continued faith. Go get back into it. What are you doing? If you have, if you have the source of all hope and joy over here, why are you over here? Because you missed the theology of the first 11 chapters is why. That's what Paul is building towards. That's what he wants us to understand. Our role is that we practice continued belief. That means that we maintain a continued trust in the one who did everything for us. That we might be unified as a body, forgiven of sin, and accounted as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. It is here that Paul is winding down the body of the letter to the Romans. He has everything he has written in mind when he prays this for the church in Rome. Everything. He's got it all. Romans 1 through Romans 11, Romans 12, 13, 14, all the way up into where we are in 15. From this passage and so many more, it is clear that the Christian life is lived in the empowerment provided only from the Lord. So what's the result? Superabounding hope. Superabounding hope. He says this as he ends verse 13, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In our pursuit of maintaining belief, we will find hope abound. The word for abound is much stronger than it seems here in the English language. It is, it is a word that we really don't have an equal to. In fact, we would the only way we can possibly classify this is we would say that we will have hope that will super abound. Superabound hope. Overflowing with more than we could ever need, ever desire, ever want, or ever use. Hope. It is this superabounding hope that distinguishes us from a hopeless world. Why is it that people drink in excess? Why is it that people uh, commit adultery in excess at all? Why is it that, that people pursue pornography at all? Why is it that, that people pursue the ways of the world at all? You know why? They're hopeless. They're hopeless. But the Christian does not have that. Paul is basing it all on the first 11 chapters. saying you are not hopeless because look at what it took. It took us a year and a half to get through it. And that was all the work that was done the moment you believed 
Christ as Savior. It was already given to you. It was already established. It was already given. It was already made ready for you. And the moment you believed, it all became real in your heart and life. You were no longer hopeless, but you had hope. We are to recognize the work that was done in providing our salvation. And we are to say, you know what? It's not an unreasonable expectation for me to pursue belief. The world says, I don't believe in God because that's impossible to believe in God. You know what? It's impossible not to believe in God. It takes much more faith to believe that there is not a God than to believe that there is a God. And it takes much more faith to say, okay, there's a God, but I don't want to follow Him, than it is for you and I to say, you know what? All this work that He's done, how can I not respond in belief? Now, Paul is not saying that this adds to your salvation. It does not. It doesn't, doesn't cause you to lose your salvation as it does not. He's saying, you want to have hope? You want to continue to live a hope-filled life, superabounding? Then continue pursuing the things of the Lord. Continue to pursue Him. We demonstrate our hope when we live in acceptance of one another. We challenge each other in godliness. But we never look with contempt on those who are weak in faith. And we never censor the use of liberty that is practiced by the strong in faith. We recognize that there is diversity, but we recognize that there is unity because of Christ. Paul is preparing to bid farewell to the church in Rome. The practical outflow of all the doctrine, all of the working, the day-to-day living as a result of that doctrine, has brought Paul to a faithful obedience. And he is calling the church to do so as well. The tie that binds us all together as a body is not our commonality not you say yeah we're all we're pretty common i mean we've got some commonalities among us right i mean there are certain things that yes you would say uh yeah there you've got some commonalities and that's okay but we should also seek the diversity that's what paul wants us to see you see it is not about our language it is not about our likes and our dislikes it is not about our convictions it is about our savior god That's what unites us together. And when you look at that believer and you say, you know what, I praise the Lord for the work done for their salvation, that changes your heart. And it ought to change your heart. Because that's where full Christian liberty can be used. We live in the acceptance of one another because we are new creatures in Christ. And in Him we have hope superabounding and a joy and peace that are inexpressible. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for this opportunity to dive into your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the work that was done for our salvation. This has been a a very long, sometimes difficult book. But I pray that we would have been challenged today by your word. Or cause us to love one another. Cause us to recognize the work that was done in each other so that we could spend eternity in heaven. And recognizing that, may we understand an acceptance Not an acceptance of sin, but an acceptance of convictions, an acceptance of liberty, an acceptance of one another. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you have accomplished for us. I pray that we would now be found faithful and obedient in living it out. In your son's name we pray. Amen.